everybody. Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. This is a podcast that focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. I'm Andrea Litt, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And today I'm here with Heidi Anderson, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Heidi, welcome. Thanks, Andrea. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, thanks again for, for joining us. And maybe we'll just start up by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, me personally? Yeah. I grew up in Oregon, Corvallis, Oregon. And when I was after high school, moved to Minnesota for college, studied geology there. And then afterwards, spent a few years working, bouncing around the Rockies and here I am. It's always interesting to me when students leave their home state and go to a university that's reasonably far away. So what made you decide to head to Minnesota, of all places, from Oregon? Part of the reason I decided to leave was because I love Oregon so much, and I figured that if I stayed, I would probably never leave. <laughs> and I figured it was probably good to get to know something else. Um, I also wanted to know what it was or go to a small school and there aren't as many like smaller only a few thousand people schools in Oregon it's more large state schools um and Minnesota had just had a lot of good schools so that was kind of a random state but it worked out <laughs> so and and you majored in geology yeah yeah okay. and so this podcast of course is called today's voices of conservation science so can you maybe help us connect the dots between geology and conservation and maybe the path isn't terribly far but yeah it wasn't particularly well thought out to begin with I started with geology just because I thought it was interesting and growing up in Oregon would hike on like volcanoes and loved finding obsidian stuff like that so it's just kind of interest in history of the earth basically that got me into it but then while I was an undergrad I started working in Glacier National Park actually and doing work on the lakes there. So I started kind of hydrology and more recent geomorphologies type stuff. Um, and then after college, that was just sort of a natural segue into natural resources and water quality type jobs. Um, and that kind of got me interested in the ecological side. So that was part of one of my goals in going to grad school is to fill in some gaps and learn more about the critters living in water instead of just the physical aspects. So it sounds like you got into conservation because you were in these places and exposed to things and maybe maybe not such a conscious choice. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it's definitely always been something that I loved, you know, growing up backpacking and stuff like that. But it wasn't necessarily a, a chosen career path, at least initially. It does seem like um, for a lot of us in this field, we have been lucky enough to integrate our personal interests, um, spending time outside and um, doing those recreational things into our into our jobs, and just seems like that's something that really gets people to love the places where they eventually will then work. Definitely, and ultimately, it's probably the most important thing. Although I will say, it gets you into trouble because most of us probably aren't natural statisticians and stuff like that, which ends up being important. But yeah, having that end goal and having it the passion that drives you will get you through the harder days. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then having the, the 
coursework to help you get those other tools that right. yeah, allows course. you to do the fun things. So um, is there anybody in particular that was really instrumental in moving you towards conservation or even moving you into geology? Um, there have been a ver- like quite a few role models, I would say. Um, my undergraduate advisor was instrumental in just providing me with that first job in Glacier National Park and also just as she was young female scientist I think that's kind of subconsciously important to have as a role model um she definitely gave me the most she introduced me to kind of the concept of research um so she was definitely big in getting the ball rolling as far as a career goes and sort of taking things from being recreational interests into more academic and yeah, career path interests, I would say. But there have been people along the way that keep me, I mean, my parents just getting me outside all the time. Um, yeah. Some, some of my first bosses just kind of introducing you to new aspects of nature that you never thought about. I never realized that insects live in streams until college and that's what I study now. (laughs) So, uh, you know, you never really know where, where things are going to take you. Yeah. I think it's, it's sometimes being exposed to things that you otherwise wouldn't be exposed to. You just don't have any idea what possibilities are out there, both for research fields, questions, or types of careers either. Absolutely. That's what I found for myself is just being aware of, of all the possibilities really opened things up and made it really fun to, to think about what you might do. So you talked about your, um, the person in your undergraduate that sort of took a chance on you and gave you your job that, that brought you to Montana. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems like that is also another theme that happens in this field is that it's really competitive and you need experience often to get a job, but that you don't, if you, don't have the experience, you can't get the job to get the experience, right? So sometimes it really is um, that someone taking a chance on you and giving you that that first opportunity. So that's one type of hurdle that I, we often hear about on uh, in these interviews. Are there any other hurdles that you had to face as you as you moved through this profession, and how did you overcome them? I have been very fortunate, I guess, in that. Things have been relatively easy. I will say, maybe this is a hurdle I'm facing more now, but initially I was super flexible about where I was able to travel, which with ecology or geology types jobs, you generally need to be able to just move to Alaska or move to Colorado or wherever you need to go to get those first few experiences or even after that. Um, So I've been pretty flexible in the past, but... Now, for personal reasons, I'm kind of constrained to Montana and I'm moving to Missoula afterwards. And so that whole prospect of going a place and finding a job there instead of just looking broadly for a job is not unique to our field, but definitely an aspect of it that I envy my nurse friends and teacher friends sometimes for that. (laughs) Um, But no, I have been fortunate in my ability to just bounce around, meet good people. You earlier you talked about the sort of female role models and and uh maybe 
not necessarily consciously thinking about that. It's not something I always thought about, but, um, but there's definitely, um, over time, there's been a, hopefully an increasing number of, of, um, women in, in ecological fields. And so it's interesting that your very first role model was a, was a woman. So I'm curious if, if they provide, if you those, those role models provided any particular guidance that, that you feel like you'd want to share or, or do you have any guidance that you'd want to share with sort of up and coming budding ecologists? I think it is important to surround yourself with people that you admire. And as a woman, I think that you should also try and surround yourself with powerful female scientists. I think that I've sort of done that out of luck and subconsciously my advisor now is also a young female professor, but I think it's just good to, to have people that are like you in certain ways <laughs> to be able to look forward to. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess something that I have had to force myself to consciously do is, and I'm not sure if this has to do with being a, a woman or just kind of my personality type is to ask questions and not just let people do things for me, even if it's slower, if I don't know how to do something to push myself in and ask to do things um, and just kind of make yourself a burden so that you can understand and you can help and you can actually learn instead of just kind of being a secretary type thing for a job, you know, take initiative. Definitely seems like that's good advice for for anybody, male or female, yeah, just being absolutely. actively engaged in yeah. in whatever you're doing from beginning beginning to end. Yeah. So you touched on it a little bit that you study you study insects in water, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and and elaborate more on that? Yeah. So my research in at Montana State is focusing on salmon fly populations in two of the major rivers in southwest Montana the Gallatin and Madison rivers and more specifically looking at how those populations are being impacted by anthropogenic and climate change in the area. Um, and then also how they're mapping their emergence patterns across these rivers, because that might be important for how consumers and fishermen are tracking these populations um, and how long Salmon flies are an important food resource for a variety of consumers. So how long that resource is available for consumers. So for those listeners that maybe aren't fishermen, fly fisher people, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about salmon fly? I don't know how many people have, are even aware of them, just like you weren't yeah, quite so aware I was of them. before I started. I forget. <laughs> they're, they're a sexy insect in these parts because people love fly fishing. But salmon flies are aquatic insects, which means that they live most of their life in streams or rivers. And then for salmon flies, they live there between two to four years and salmon flies eat detritus and are just kind of opportunistic eaters. And then they emerge in these huge synchronized hatches in the early summer. So maybe a week span at any given location. And they're can be over two inches long, which is huge for an aquatic insect. Um, and then they just fly around and mate and lay their eggs back in the water. And when they're in their terrestrial stage, they are pretty clumsy and they're horrible flyers and they're just basically flying stakes. So 
birds and fish and spiders and all sorts of other animals like to eat them. So tell us more a little bit more about this hatch. What does that what does that mean? What does that look like? So in the middle of the night, salmon flies will they'll crawl out of the water onto the banks and they just kind of shimmy out of their exoskeletons. Um and yeah, and then they dry off and they fly around. They're super clumsy. So if you're on the river or on a bank during a salmon fly hatch, you'll just have these just dozens of these huge orange insects crawling all over you and they're harmless, but it can be kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. And you talked about these consumers. So consumers both in terms of the animals, the fish and other things that are consuming them, but also the consumers from the, the fly fisher people perspective. Yeah. So the salmon fly hatch is probably the single largest event in the fly fishing world in the West, at least. Um, people come from all over the world call months in advance trying to figure out when these insects are going to hatch. Of course, no one really knows until it's about <laughs> to happen. But yeah, so it's a huge economic uh, boost for small towns like Ennis or even Bozeman around here. The rivers really blow up during the salmon fly hatches. And then just being really important for lots of other animals at that time as well, an abundant food source. Right. Yeah. I mean, one salmon fly is way easier than eating a bunch of tiny little mayflies or other aquatic insects. So it's a good bang for their buck for sure. And you're interested in, in sort of climate factors. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you're doing that since climate change has been happening for happened slowly and over a long period of time? How yeah. do you collect your data? Yeah. So I am lucky in that there's several long-term data sets in this area looking at water temperature. So we actually have recorded increases over the last 40 years. Um, and then how salmon fly populations are responding to that observed change in water temperature. So we have body size data, emergence timing data, and then abundance and distribution on the Madison River in specific for salmon flies. That historic, those historic data sets just seem really important for our understanding. And those data probably were collected with very different objectives in mind, very different purposes. Yeah. And we kind of hodgepodge piecemealed a bunch of different historical data sets together so yeah some of it's usgs data discharge and water temperature and then using past master theses um from the 70s you know i bet he never expected someone to read his full dissertation but i've done it <laughs> about five times so um yeah and then using some just citizen scientists because the samplify hatch is such a big deal people record their emergence timing on these rivers. So we're able to take that data and look at how timing may have changed over the last 40 years too. That also seems like citizen science data seems like it's been become increasingly more prevalent and important because we can accumulate lots of information pretty quickly and, and people are really engaged with the environment. So it's been, it's been a great thing for ecology. Yeah, definitely. So you also collect data yourself in the field mm -hmm. in yes. addition to all this historic data. So what are some methods, some tools that you use to collect your current data? Yeah. So we, part of what we do is record the timing of salmon fly emergence events. So when we're doing that, I mentioned they kind of wriggle out of their exoskeletons right on the shoreline. So we go along and stand in the river and, pick these 
exoskeletons they're huge they're like two inches long off of the bank so everyone else is busy fishing and we just <laughs> look super silly picking these exoskeletons off but it's a really accurate way to document how many salmon flies have emerged because they get eaten so fast sometimes collecting the adults is actually not a super accurate way to look at abundance and then also you can get really accurate curves of like how long the emergence events take because Salmon flies will fly around for a few days after they wriggle out of their exoskeletons, but the shucks will stop or their exoskeletons will stop appearing after they're done crawling out. So that's one way we do it. Yeah. I think it's always pretty fun when you're out doing your work and you stimulate all these confused looks and questions because it gives you the opportunity (laughs) often to be able to talk about what you're, what you're doing. Definitely. Yeah. I've had last year or last summer, there are a couple little boys that were running around and I got them to collect salmon flies for me. They were so excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's great. So um, if you had to summarize, why would you say your research is important? I would say the it's long-term data sets are rare. And when you have the opportunity, it's important to, see if and how things are changing in order to restore and protect our resources better. You know, you don't know exactly how or what to protect unless you know how it's responding to change. So that I think is just broadly important and we have the opportunity to do that here. That's great. So you mentioned both restoration and conservation and do we have both of those options potentially in this system and and like what what might that look like? What might restoration look like and what might conservation look like? Yeah. So there has actually been a fair amount of really cool restoration work on some of the tributaries of the Madison River, um, which is there's a lot of livestock grazing in that valley. So some of the tributaries like Odell Creek, there's been really cool work um, that just makes a more natural flow regime for those tributaries. And even I'm looking at salmon flies on the main stem, but those tributary inputs, if you can cool the water temperatures for the tributaries coming in, that is really important and even flow throughout the year that creates better environments for insects, both in those tributaries and downstream in the main stems. So that is a cool way that I've seen some really good restoration locally. And where are you in your research process? What stage? Uh, I'm almost done with field work and I'm graduating in August, just at the date. Oh, hey, that's exciting. So any preliminary findings you want to share or or what might be the best thing that you could find with your (laughs) with your research? The best thing I could find would be that Salmon flies are healthy and populations are stable and the same. They're doing great and we don't have to worry about anything. (laughs) And any sense of whether that's actually going to be the outcome that will come out of your work? There definitely have been changes. I wouldn't say they are an imperiled species, but um, yeah, they have, they used to be common below Ennis Reservoir. And now they're kind of functionally gone from that part of the river. Populations in the Gallatin seem to be 
relatively robust. Um, that river is cooler and is runs through uh, national park and national forest land. So that seems to be doing better. And they're doing well in the Madison River above that as well. But things are changing. They look like body size may be decreasing. So just... Wait and see. Huh? Wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> Wait and see till all the data are analyzed. So we tend to wrap up these podcasts with this sort of standard question of what's your favorite animal or what's your favorite plant or what's one of each? I have been really into amphibians recently. Um, tiger salamanders specifically. I just love how they always look like they're smiling. <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's great. Yeah, those are my current favorite. It's always changing, though. Amphibians are pretty, pretty interesting organisms. And being at an interface between water and land, something like your samoflies that spend yeah. part of their lives in both places. <laughs> yeah. Seems like some common themes. Any favorite plant? Mm, you know, I miss some of the the more lush vegetation from Oregon. So mosses and lichens appeal to me. Mushrooms, those aren't plants, but, you know, similar. Eco- right? I guess salamanders do. It's, there's a theme here. <laughs> there yeah, like that dark, dank biology. <laughs> Going back to Oregon. Yeah. That's great that you can appreciate it now that you're not there. Right, Maybe exactly. you did then too, but that's great. Well, thank you, Heidi. Thanks for, for talking with us and for telling us a little bit about you and a little bit about your work. And, uh, and I really wish you the best in the rest of your time here at Montana State, which doesn't sound like it's too terribly long before you go off and do other great things. So thanks for, to all the listeners for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about our podcast. Thanks. <laughs>